Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we study leadership in data science and artificial intelligence to help you become a better leader in this space. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for coming back, tuning again. Today's episode, we speak with Mary Gray. She is a senior principal researcher at Microsoft Research. She's also an associate professor at Indiana University and recently co-authored a book called Ghostwork, which talks about the dynamic between advanced and emerging economies in the artificial intelligence space, especially on the people from emerging economies that are doing a lot of data labeling work for the artificial intelligence being created. Over her career, Mary has done super interesting research. You see me getting very excited about her past research her and her current research that led to the book. I think she has a amazing perspectives and a super cool job. It was a fantastic conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, this Hi, is Felipe. Hey, today I'm speaking with Mary. Hi, Mary. How are you doing today? Hi, Felipe. I'm good. How are you doing? So well, thanks so much for making the time. I'm so excited to be speaking with you. Where in the world are you at the moment? At the moment, I am sitting, looking out at the Charles River in my office in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Amazing. Can you please start by telling us a bit about your background? How did you get to where you are today? What have you done for your career? It's such an interesting journey. Can you please uh, tell us a bit about that? It's a bit of a meander. I trained as an anthropologist and a media scholar, and most of my work was really asking questions and focusing on communities that otherwise don't have much access to technology. So a lot of my burning questions are what happens when technologies land in people's everyday lives and they try to make them useful to their everyday needs. And particularly, I was drawn to young people in the rural parts of the United States who were coming out and coming on line to be able to talk with other people who identified as lesbian, gay, bi, trans, questioning. And it was at a moment when the internet and social media were so new and it seemed like they were going to open up so many opportunities to be anywhere else in the world than in places where most people would think who would live there. And so a lot of my interest was in researching how people make decisions about what they do with technologies. And it, in that project, which took me over 10 years, it was striking to see how many people were really trying to figure out how to how to create some sense of belonging where they live, like to mm. use technologies to make themselves visible to their neighbors, to their families, to their friends. So after doing that work and spending a lot of time in places that are often really removed from tech centers, and technological development and spending time as a university professor and really wanting, itching to be able to change things, to make things better. I accepted an invitation to join Microsoft Research, which is really an odd. (laughs) I was going to say, yeah. (laughs) It's an odd place for somebody who studies queer and questioning youth (laughs) in (laughs) the United States. But it's funny. So this lab, and there are several of them, but Microsoft Research as a research unit as a setting, it really picked up the mantle of Bell Labs. It Uh believes in, in fact, many of its founding members, founding scientists came from Bell Labs. And it works with the assumption that we should be thinking 20 years out. We should not be thinking about what to make 
tomorrow, but thinking about what are those big questions that science would have to solve to change everything in computer science and engineering. And it's a really inspiring approach. I mean, Microsoft can afford to have, um, yes. it's a luxury if, of a large company that can invest deeply in research and development. And it's a place that has been able to make use of insights, theoretical insights from pure yes. math. So it's pretty exciting to be in a place that, for the most part, has worked with the assumption that science is good for technology and for the companies that build it. And um, how was it going into the lab and getting into that mindset of such a long time horizon? It's like being at science fair on steroids. I mean, it's just constantly thinking big picture, blue sky, like all of those metaphors we have for letting the kinds of questions we ask be driven by understanding the world and believing that is a long-term endeavor. Like there's, there's yes. no immediate payoff in trying to understand how genomics work computationally, yeah. for example. So it's exciting to be in a place that's not looking for an immediate answer, but is still driven by that sense of the imperative that science itself is necessary to the public, to society, to be able to continue to progress to, uh, you know, to better our worlds and ourselves. I think what was really a game changer was by the, I came in in 2012, I believe kind of early days and quite prescient of Microsoft research to see, lo and behold, when you're building technologies, you're interacting with society. I think we're, yeah. you know, <laughs> we're still early <laughs> days of how do we deal with that? And so we, there were a, a group of us who were brought in who specifically work on those questions about society who are trained to think about institutions and cultural forces that are always part of the picture historically, ethnographically about what it is people do and do not do with technologies mm -hmm. in their everyday lives, not as individuals, but really as groups and communities and countries, linguistic groups. Um, so that's really exciting. I think they understood having scholars in the conversation in the mix with the people who were theorizing networks would be mm -hmm. a really fruitful experiment. And so far, so good. I mean, I think. Definitely, definitely. What has surprised you the most in your time at this lab? Or what was something that you didn't expect when you first came in? When I came in, I thought I would be one of the few people who would be wearing this hat that basically said social justice. I'd be the person walking around the office saying, you know, these technologies do have disparate impact, that they are constantly interacting and circulating in, in places that are not well-resourced. So every time mm. we make something with short battery life or that needs to be plugged in, Correct. I'm like, yeah. So, or you, you know, think about think about the environment. You know, so those questions to see that those are actually fundamental to how you'd approach computing problems to bring them into the thick of the problem solving. I imagined I would have to spend a lot of energy making a case mm -hmm. for how to bring what is often kind of gestured as all things being equal. So we don't have to pay attention to those things. Yes. We'll just, we can't account for them. So we'll just focus on the things we will assume we have full power. We'll assume that our uh -huh. environment is an endless, vast resource. I thought I'd have to be making a stronger case. 
really since the time I've been here, it has been the rise of this awareness, particularly among younger computer scientists and engineers coming up, that they are building things that are, in fact, not closed systems, but really these social environments. And their willingness, their eagerness to take on their role, particularly data scientists, Mm. in attending to, listening to society's needs, assuming that they don't have the expertise uh, that they needs to be in in the conversation. That's come so quickly. I'm so impressed with my colleagues at their willingness to see that there are these social dynamics that they weren't trained to see or understand but are in fact so consequential that they can't do without that. So now when we get postdocs and PhD interns come in the summer, they are just their hairs on fire to think about questions around fairness and bias. And it's really wonderful. I'm certainly not the only one here who's thinking about social justice. That is fantastic. And is most of your work focused on the United States, or do you go global and look at the differences between different cultures? Yeah, great question. Because so much of my early work was really a challenge to my colleagues who think of the United States as developed and the global North is developed in these uniform ways, and then there's everywhere else. Yes. That looking at the rural United States, so I was looking at places in Southeast Appalachia, Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, and parts of Illinois and Ohio, looking at those places where most people in the United States at elite colleges don't go was my attempt to say there's not anything uniform about the United States. My more recent work is really to push to think about the distributed nature of work. And that means it's just moving around the world in really uneven patterns. It moves into places in India. So for example, my last project ghost work was looking at the United States and India and looking at how much the fates of these two countries are tied and that they have very particular patterns in terms of where work goes, where it originates, what kinds of payments come and what those look like in different directions. So I'm very interested in the broader global sensibility of technology, that there's really nothing here or there about it. Yes, that's right. And is it fair to say that your earlier work was more focused on the social side of technology and the current or more recent one on the work side of of technology? Oh, that's interesting, Philippe. Honestly, yes and no. By the time I finished that last project, it was so clear to me that the absence of economic opportunity was part of what exacerbated the effects of being different in places where being different can have such a cost. My earlier work, it was to say, when you're in a small town, being local, being familiar is the Mm -hmm. most important currency you have. The other important currency, it's the economic realities of where you live. What are the job opportunities? How far away do you have to drive to get them? In some ways, the work I've been doing since I came to Microsoft Research was meant to think about these questions of political economic impact Mm -hmm. of technology. It's certainly, in some ways, it's to look at how social work is. And that we don't Uh leave our social selves at the door when we go to work. And the consequences of assuming that you could ever strip away a work environment 
and that people would say, oh, okay, then I'll, I'll work in isolation. It turns out people don't do that. They're quite resistant to having technology strip away their social connections and the very sociality of work life. So interesting. And one thing that you said about your earlier work that stuck with me is how people wanted to use technology to be seen locally. I didn't expect that as to be such an important point. I thought that maybe people were wanting to escape their geographical confines and, and yeah. be able to join with minds around the world that have similar views. How was that dynamic? How did that play out? I think I had the same assumption to some degree. I had a hunch. And in some ways, the structure of that project, it was really meant to think about the young people who don't leave their rural communities and often don't have the means to leave. So up to that point, most of what we might understand about rural gay life came from people who ran screaming from their hometowns. Yes, yes, correct. And so that narrative, that kind of the continuous, the unrelenting sense that like these must be horrible places, who would stay there? Part of this project was to think through, well, how do you navigate being told constantly that where you live is crappy and you should leave? So there's kind of resonance and parallel to the current work about how people are supposed to absorb being told their work is dirty or awful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but for that first project, it was a mixture. But again, the lion's share of what people were doing, they were trying to use this to make where they live habitable. They mm. wanted to be able to show, I can be who I am here. It was quite moving. And I think striking at a moment, you know, this is 2009 or so. So think back to a time in internet years, that's forever ago. And it's before we really had a lot of good empirical work tell us like, yes, in fact, when we go online, we reproduce the social relationships we have in our everyday lives. And we build into that these moments of kind of serendipitous moments of meeting people we've never met before. So it is always that combination and the idea that people are trying to get away and that as a narrative, particularly for rural locations, it comes from somewhere. It's not really coming from the people who live there. The people who live there feel quite clear they live in a place and it can suck on a Friday night, um, just like it can really suck if you're in a big city and you have no money and you're in a town that's maybe a suburb and you can't get to a city. So wherever we live, we're kind of navigating those different narratives and technologies are part of what we use to deal, to figure out how to connect and disconnect from different groups of people. Yes, that's right. It's so interesting that definitely my perception was biased in the sense of only getting the certain data data points in, which yeah. were the ones, as you said, that go, that run screaming away from their original place. Oh, yeah. that's really interesting. Was there any other major interesting points or something that really changed your original viewpoint at doing that work? Yeah, I think it was the beginning of seeing the capacity for people to collectively organize and not just shore up each other's sense of self, to be able to kind of be in solidarity. So the example I'd offer, you know, young people coming out as transgender and literally sharing with each other all of the details of how they would contact a doctor, how they would talk with a doctor. Oh, great. Um, Yeah. I mean, lots of material that otherwise isn't there. 
if I zoom up a level and just think like what's going on there, like watching both the process in which people share information mm. and they're doing that at a distance from each other, but they're also building trust in how they exchange information, how they learn about who to listen to, who to tune out. They're communicating and getting information at the same time in a lot of mm. ways. Like it's kind of the yeah. convergence of that that's possible with these kinds of technologies. And in doing that, it means they are shaping each other's sense of self. It's not just a statement of fact. It's literally they're learning how to become who they are in relation to somebody else. Like, I love that. That just blows my yeah. mind. And that's what I love about studying gender and sexuality, actually. It's that it's something that's so intimate. Like, it's such a yes. sense of like that comes from who I am. And yet you can watch in an ethnographic, anthropological way how that's shaped by our interactions with each other. And I love that. That means we can constantly change. And if we're constantly interacting with each other, we can constantly yes. transform into different senses of who we are. That blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite parts about my job. Oh, 100%. That is fantastic. And that would be so interesting to see as people come into contact with each other, as they start to evolve, there would be different waves of, I guess, movements um, happening in groups. Yeah. I mean, and you can track the language that people use, the moments when they kind of start correcting each other in different ways. Like, oh, no, we use this term or I used to use that, like watching that reflection. To me, that's actually the value of qualitative, ethnographic, longitudinal research in relationship to data science. Because if you think about mm. data science and really any approach to trying to understand society that's looking at, at signals, it's looking at measurements of something in a moment. In doing that, it, it's appropriate. It has to say, this is happening right now. And it kind of isolates that moment. You can't really, qualitatively, you can get at change over time. It's really tough in some ways for data science to get at change over time, except big sweeping macro patterns macro movement, but to watch the incremental qualitative interjections, like seeing that happening through people's interactions and groups' interactions and conversations. Mm. To me, it's that's the beauty of combining those two approaches because you can just get such a comprehensive sense of the how dynamic we are, like that we're really not very predictable animals. Yes, we're that's right. We've got our routines, but at the end of the day, it's amazing to watch the capacity for all of us to change. It's amazing. And yeah, and the, the fact, you know, that technology allows for that visibility into people's interactions. In a way, it would be like ancient tribes coming into contact for the first time and being able to be there, you know, in their exchanges and how to see how each of them changed as changes as a result of the interaction. But obviously the in a modern and technological and more intimate perspective of being able to see those changes. Oh, amazing. Amazing. I love it. Sorry. I was going to say, it gets even more meta because when you introduce these technologies, it becomes part it's not just facilitating, it is shaping. Like it has particular kind of force in that 
think about geofencing. If there's yes. a certain way in which you don't get to see some sort of activity or opportunity, or you see it in this way that makes it seem as though, well, that's not available to you. But those also shape our sense of what's possible and, you know, what's impossible or not allowed. So, you know, if you use these, use the example of dating apps and thinking about how they, for rural young people who might see that somebody's 75 miles away, (laughs) that that can give you the sense that there really isn't somebody available Mm. to you. That's a really interesting thing because it's not that there isn't somebody who might be in your town or the town next to you. It's that they're not on an app. And if apps Correct. become the way that you're navigating that, navigating, finding somebody to date, it can also give you this sense of kind of foreclose what's possible. So it's that's the part that I most of the questions I ask have to do with thinking about how technologies both make us more seen and can also make it harder to be seen, you know, yes. those dynamics happening at the same time. That's profound because I think it then, for me, it's the reminder that the technologies are kind of incomplete in terms of what kind of impact they're going to have. Correct. People pick them up and yeah. then they just run. They do something with them. There's not some deterministic impact. It's literally this cycling that's happening where there's Somebody's going to get some technology that has particular limits for them, and they're going to push them beyond those limits and do something else with them. Nobody who built those technologies had any idea. And if you were looking at the signals of how things are being used, my favorite example is thinking about how many people don't respond to a forum. And we don't have any other way to understand that other than those are passive users. And I love thinking like you know those people who are reading it means something to them they're yeah. probably having a conversation that you can't measure because they're having it with correct them, right? all the things we cannot measure that are so immeasurably important like that making sure we're all tracking that we're getting half the story always yeah. getting half the story when we're kind of looking at what we can collect with technologies and so for me it's watching and participating and engaging people and seeing what are they doing with technologies and how is Smooth this facilitator, again, but also foreclosing certain things. A constraint and this wide open possibility whenever it's Definitely. So many things about what you just said <laughs> have blown my mind, by the way. I'll start by saying that I am the one of those passive observers in the forums that I'm interested. I read all the comments. I never say anything. What I was going to say is that what was so interesting about your example of the dating app in a rural area where you do get that message saying that the next or like an available possible partner is so far away, that information to a degree shapes your reality. You're interacting with the technology and it's kind of telling you or signaling you what's happening in your world. Absolutely. That's fascinating. Absolutely. No, I mean, and I think that for me, being able to see what does somebody do with that story, with something that's telling them somebody's not available to them, what do they do next? And being able to see the other, the context under which somebody says, I'm then going to go do a search online and look for something else. Do they, you know, do they stop using that app? Do they start hacking that app and doing something else with it, which we definitely have plenty of good research that tells us, yes, most people don't take Mm -hmm. at face value that they will not find somebody close, you know, that they'll only find somebody 75 miles away. But it's 
all the levels of just in that one example of the assumptions that are made in building an app that has an idea of where the center of action is and where nothing's happening and how somebody refashions that way of looking at the world, depending on where they are and the resources they have. I mean, at the end of the day, both material, but social to be able to say, I'm not going to accept that. One of my favorite things to share from that research was, you know, young people who were going to a local, a a regional Walmart and doing drag in the middle of Walmart on in the evening. Yeah, it was awesome. And they were amazing. And they would take pictures of each other and Record it mostly pictures because this is again, it's like early, you know, late 2000s, and they would post it online. And it, most of it, they're posting it to each other. That was their way of saying, like, I am here. Get this is me. Yeah. This is me. <laughs> and they had really smart strategy, which was they went when their friends were working shifts so they wouldn't right. get thrown out. They knew when there was an away game, so the kids who usually would pick on them were not in town. So all of those moves that are about making themselves present. I love it. This is amazing. Let's start talking about your most recent work. <laughs> I was going to say, for <laughs> listeners are going to be like, you know, why are we <laughs> talking about kids out in the country using technology? <laughs> it's so interesting, though. It's so interesting. And your most recent work is so interesting as well because it's across multiple countries how people's lives and work lives is being shaped through the advancements in technology in the AI space and some of the tech giants and the unseen impact. Uh, Could you tell us a, a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, when I finished that project on young people and really started thinking about questions around economic opportunity, when I got to Microsoft Research, it was at the very beginning, kind of the billowing up of big data and the beginning of talking about artificial intelligence and what kind of impact it would have on jobs, what kind of impact it would have on individual consumers and what they would be able to do with these technologies. I just needed to understand how artificial intelligence worked. When I first got to the lab, I basically was setting about learning how these technologies are built, what exactly they do. And I started meeting engineers and computer scientists who told me about using training data to build models for algorithms to be able to simulate a human decision. And they would, as an aside, mention and they'd hire people who would annotate and clean this data. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. So wait, you hire people. What do you mean you hire people? Who are these people? And it was really... I'm I'm covering my face here. Sorry (laughs) to interrupt. I'm covering my face here because that was was me in 2008. I started a an analytics company that did a lot of consulting. We would get a lot of messy data. I used online services to label that data. It went all around the world. It was like 10 cents per image labeled or a sentence or something like that. And since then, and I, I very embarrassingly like didn't and haven't since thought much of it. Like as you said, it is literally a small point that I would make in in telling about this work that we would use these people, these people that I never met, these anonymous people, to help us label all this data, and then we would get these inputs, and we were able to complete really interesting projects as a result of this. Anyway, I never really stopped 
to think about it. <laughs> now no. your, your work is so interesting, but I'm definitely covering my face in shame here. <laughs> no, don't. And I think actually it's really important. It's not shameful. It's so telling. And I think this is the most important part is to recognize how is it that it had become so common. I think it's less common now. It's yeah. still relatively common that we could have this immediate need, got to get this training data cleaned up. And it we had this amazing technology, innovation, human computation yeah. that meant you literally could send off that task and have it oh. completed and send it to hundreds, thousands of people and have Correct. it done. So, I mean, it's that's a lot of, in some ways, the goal of this project is to slow it down and say, how did we get here to have folks like you or others I met who said, I don't know who I hired. And the responses really ran from, I don't know, isn't that awesome? To, I don't know, and I don't have to know. And then meeting a few people who were starting to question and who said, I don't know, I'm afraid to find out. It really has been such a recent shift to start paying attention, to imagine mm. there's a reason. Some of that comes from, I think, the likely good intentions of the people building out these analytic companies, mm. other efforts. They're, they're assuming the world is good. So it's coming from a, we could call it naivete. I think it's mm. a yeah, well-intentioned, it moving fast, <laughs> things break in front of you, and it's hard to see the things breaking that aren't in front of you. Correct. Right. I know that in my case, I was placing trust in the market, even yes. though it seemed weird, because I was saying we would get hundreds of thousands of images, for example, and we would send each image to three to five people to get labeled. And then we could do like a little vote for what the label is for that particular image. And sometimes it was 10 cents an image, sometimes less. Yeah. All I would think is literally the extent of my thought was this must work for them. But that's terrible. Like now that I stop and think about it as a result of your work, I go, how is that? <laughs> I think the challenge is there's nothing in place and actually every incentive going against you asking anything more than what you asked. And, and it, there isn't anything that requires us all to say, to ask that as a question, yes. is this working for them? And mm -hmm. I think that's really the heart and soul of this research project, which is a collaboration with Sadara Suri, who's a computer scientist, mm -hmm. who was the first person I met who said, I don't know who these people are, but I'd like to find out. So, I mean, that sense that it will matter, but not necessarily understanding why it might matter. And I think that's what's yeah. really the most intriguing part of the research for me was, you know, asking that core question, who are these people? How does that change the nature of work? And then to be able to bring it back around as we learned about people's lives. Are you picking up background noise as we're talking? There's some folks really outside. Good. So nice. having that, the research come back around and say, asking that question about who the people doing this work are, but as importantly, what kind of work conditions are they yes. in? It will mean the difference when it comes to the quality of your data. Like just That's right. cold terms, cold, hard terms. If you don't care at all about people, but you come to grips with, in most cases, data analytics, the low-hanging fruit you can get cheaply. There's a certain point where as we push our problems in artificial intelligence forward, they depend on domain experts Correct. giving you that weighted judgment. You yes. need their expertise beyond fairly simple, quick snap judgment. You need them to deliberate. 
the deliberation, it's hitting that reality of high quality data, the advancement of artificial intelligence. We call this the paradox of automation's last mile, that it will depend on us paying attention to the work conditions of the people who are providing their insight. Because in fact, most of what's marvelous about artificial intelligence is that it's able to model human decision-making based on a lot of priors, a lot of good training data. And there are always problems that are going to require humans doing that training. And we'll definitely, I would argue, some data scientists might disagree, but I would argue we're going to hit a set of problems that are beyond artificial intelligence in terms of it being the decision maker. It will absolutely be a fantastic resource for surfacing what directions could we go. These are the decisions you could make. But what we saw were companies that were increasingly building out a second stream of work, which was keep a person in the loop, have them be the responder when AI falls short in customer service exchanges, certainly telemedicine. So we we're really looking at a world of work that was going to depend on contingent labor, people's availability, this kind of constant flow of people being organized around a task or a project, image tagging being a very good example of data labeling, and then finish the job, move on, but that we could see that there's an endless supply of tasks and projects. And that could be a great thing. That could be a great thing if we're not imagining people disappear from human computation. If we're assuming that the project and task is going to change, it's going to be Mm. constantly evolving. Mm. Um, We'll get one thing right, but particularly with anything social, like if you're dealing with language, anything around natural language processing, right? Like these problems are intractably hard technical problems. You can throw a lot of data at these problems, but the data is so dirty. So it's good news in many ways. It's good news if we come to grips with, oh, that means the market can't solve this precisely because the pricing is based on an economic model that Mm -hmm. assumes, it literally assumes the people aren't the important part. And I'll actually put it another way. There's a, cha- there's a chapter in the book that's specifically history. We've built most of our ways of thinking about how to value people's labor mm. on some interesting stories we tell about mm. where you find valuable people, what they look mm. like, what schools they went to. A lot of those stories don't apply in a world organized around projects and tasks that depend mm. on a baseline everybody is capable They have perhaps the domain expertise you need for looking at training data to deal with a medical diagnostics set of decision-making. Fair, you need people who have some background in those terminologies. That's still a baseline. And so Mm. what's really valued, what's valuable in a market where you're depending on, can I find enough people who will help me go through this material and give me a weighted response? Because you couldn't have Mm. one person do that. You're you're valuing bringing people together. You're valuing, in some ways, the person who gets it wrong. And there is no version of our economic models that know how to price that labor that really respects what they're bringing Mm. to the table. Like we've put another way, this is information services and there's no good evidence that markets know how to value people being available to each other. If it did, teachers would be paid astronomical amounts of money. Nurses Mm. would be paid off the charts. That's not happening for the most part because we haven't really shifted to thinking, well, what is the value of somebody making themselves contingently available? 
not being the employee you keep forever because the other elements that have changed here, it's as a data analytics company, you're drawing on a pool of workers. Mm. You're not looking yeah. to retain. On demand. Yeah. Mm. What are you going to do with somebody five years from now if they yeah. don't align with the project or task you're working on? I hope I'm not speaking too abstractly, but it's the problem we're facing is a social problem. Society yes. has always had to step in and say, we've got this new work site. The last time we did this, the new work site was a factory floor. We've got a new work site. It's a distributed form of project task-based work that can go anywhere in the world and it won't have one employer and people won't share a professional identity. Oh my goodness, we've never done that before. We literally have to rewrite all of our rules around what are the basic expectations we're going to hold for anyone entering labor market like this because we don't know. We don't have basics in place. That's right. Oh, so many things I want to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> I should say this is good news because that means we can, just like my previous work, it shows us we can make this anything we want. Exactly right. And do you see this as evolving in a multi-tiered approach? And what I mean by that is that there is there is work that just needs to be automated and almost anyone can do that work versus work that needs a bit more specialization or a bit more understanding and then work that can only be automated through the use of specialists and just focusing on sort of, I guess, part A in the creation of the algorithms and the creation of the automation. And then part B would be the execution and the use of those algorithms with the human in the loop like you would. So for example, my wife is a doctor and obviously me being in, in data science, we speak a lot about the, the crossover. And at times throughout the year, she's asked me a, few, a number of times saying, you know, a doctor is going to be automated. Is AI going to be the new doctor? And I've always said, no, I don't think so. Like maybe, but I don't think so. And I said, like the way that, that I see it evolving is that you as a doctor would have an assistant, which is an AI. And that assistant would give you all the information that currently you're having to memorize and look up and have to study <laughs> extremely hard. And that would give you a huge leg up. But that, that I see that in the sort of the usage of the algorithms, but there's the automation and the creation of the algorithms that need a lot of human labor. Yeah. How do you see the two sides evolving? And, and is it going to be a multi-tiered sort of development on one or both of those sides? Yeah, I love, I think your phrasing of multi-layered, multi-tiered is a yeah. good one to hold on to as an uh -huh. organizing principle here. I tend to think of this like think sets of waves in the ocean. That you're uh -huh. going to have some problems solved fully enough that yes, you could have just a basic understanding that people could bring to a problem. And I'm really resistant to calling that low skilled because I don't think we really mm. have a way of thinking about what kind of capacity a person is bringing in that moment of being able to make a, yes. maybe a quick decision about a label that you could put in front of any person and they might be able to make a fairly clear distinction, one image from the other, or a good keyword to attach. So annotation is a really yes. interesting place to think about these problems because we mm -hmm. could see like one set of waves can clear out a certain kind of task-based work, can automate away yes. um, what needs to be done. Odds are pretty good. It's going to open up this horizon of other things that we still need specialized knowledge and experience 
for somebody to be able to come to the fore and say this, not that, to be able to further push out what could be taken on by an AI agent. And actually, mm-hmm. medicine is a really interesting place to think about it because that last part, it might mean that the part that seems so beguiling hard to turn over to artificial intelligence, it might just be that it's because it's something that arguably is beyond modeling, which is how do you have a moment of empathy? The dystopic version of this is that we as society believe that that's something that only people with wealth have the privilege and luxury of experiencing an empathetic moment in when they're dying or when they're being born. I'm a relentless optimist. It's imagining that that we're creating more opportunities for empathy to be the lion's share of the time that your wife would spend with a patient. And that is imaginable if we think about the tears you were describing, for me, these waves, that to get that ability to care for each other to the moment where that's most of our time is getting to do that. There are lots of other decisions that can be both automated and semi-automated. And the pipeline to doing that is decades of people working really hard to really nail with a lot of fidelity and certainty some level of automated decision-making so that we feel confident. I don't need to do that part. I can focus on the patient, right? So I I think it's recognizing that the other example I give people is think about HTML. You could make bank the early. (laughs) That's right. Right? Like tons of money programming in HTML. That's gone. Correct. Gone. Took (laughs) a decade to completely knock out what used to be really high paying, considered high skilled levels of sophisticated coding. And it became routine enough And at the same time, we did create this niche, very high-end market for design. So it didn't completely obliterate all coding. It created a specialized place in which somebody who can do something very original, unique, distinct with Mm. HTML can hand code or play with different programs and that we're still going to see a market for that. So it is the place, I don't know that I have a belief in markets per se, but what I do imagine are the accessibility of things like medicine or design that mean more people can be participating in different parts of those tiers and benefiting from what comes from those different tiers being available of really nailing down an automated problem, having it be semi-automated, having it be something that we socially still reserve as a place where we value human touch. And I think what's striking for me at the end of the research, seeing the startups coming in across industries, is that there's so many places that when it comes to service, because really a lot of our economic activity, it's providing services to each other, whether it's a barista or a dinner or tour, a poem. That's where we're spending our money. And so to see that so much of that economic activity in services, data analytics absolutely has to be there to to push out artificial intelligence and those kinds of services. There's such a hard wall for Mm. how far computation can go because most of service, it is a gesture of, I see you. Yes. I hear you. I care. And If we stop caring about that, that might mean there's less of those jobs. But I actually picture more of those jobs 
precisely because that moment of caring, of being the person who can be able to bring the mix of all the education that can be designed to see what a student has maybe done in the past, but then be able to say, I see you've done these things in the past, but what makes them easy for you? What makes mm-hmm. them hard? Like that communicative moment, complex communication, anything that's spontaneity, creative, those are the places that are really hard to touch in theory, in computational theory. So I feel like um, for those who care for other people, their jobs are safe. We have an infinite number of those jobs, but can we make the work conditions sustainable? And the inevitable question is, oh, actually, I I am going to be respectful of your time. I just saw that time. (laughs) No, I'm (laughs) terrible. So, I mean, I I apologize. I I just go. No, this is is excellent. (laughs) You're asking asking some of my favorite questions, Lupe. Okay, amazing. Glad to hear. (laughs) This is so fascinating. So, I guess the inevitable question, and last, maybe last question, (laughs) how do you see this evolving in the different countries that you looked at? So there will be different realities in India and in the U.S. How is this evolving and how can it evolve? What are your your thoughts on that side? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I'm going to make a brash statement. There's so much that we're talking about that suggests much of the work of data science and developing artificial intelligence is a global project. From localization, having something be linguistically and culturally on point Mm -hmm. requires knowledge, subject matter expertise that is not controlled or contained to one nation state. And to me, that means we get to reckon with something we've avoided, which is paying some people in other parts of the world less because we can Mm -hmm. rather than because there's something less valuable about what they offer. Again, we don't have good economic models to really call out how much the kind of knowledge work, information, service work we're talking about cannot be priced in the way that we're used to pricing things. And it means that it could both, these go together, it could open up places where technologies could thrive And we would all benefit from how they would be taken up in locations that have otherwise be seen as the margins, like rural parts of the United States that have so much to contribute, could be a game changer in terms of addressing the environmental hazards that come with creating megacities, all that comes with creating centers and depleting, in some ways, destroying people in places at the margins. So it's a metaphor in some ways for what it would look like to truly value in this distributed, democratic way, everybody who's able to contribute to the advancement of these technologies and cold terms, the markets that could be opened up for taking up these technologies. So I actually believe that what could be possible is seeing the kind of wealth and prosperity that came with the first industrial revolution that stayed in the global north precisely because much of the prosperity came at the cost of other locations. So this is our chance to address that, to say, what does it look like to have global prosperity that isn't extractive, that isn't exploitative, that is genuinely distributed and very much an exchange, like the kind of flow that I think we see is a value that you could get hundreds of 
judgments in a moment and it didn't matter where they came from. So let's make that not matter in terms of the quality of people's lives where they're offering those contributions. That's possible because we don't have a story anymore about how expensive it is to ship those chairs, right? Any of the other kinds of narratives we have, all the other ways we explain why we distribute the bounty, the wealth made by the technologies we sell, who's accountable to workers where they are. Like all of those stories are built around a very particular notion of a factory and a single employer and somebody, a winner. (laughs) So this is, I think, a chance to rethink all of those things. Amazing. Truly, truly amazing. Mary, modest thank goals. You. Modest goals in our research. <laughs> it's the way to do it. Mary, thank you so much. You've blown my mind so many times <laughs> in this conversation. Thank you so much for all the great work that you're doing. Thank you so much for your book, for putting that this message out there. It definitely needs to be listened very widely and taken seriously. So we can create uh, the world that, that we that more people would like to live in. Yeah. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with us. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you so much. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommended for people wanting to get ahead with the program. You can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. I wanted to tell you about We Are Rubik's, one of Australia's leading pure data consulting companies delivering project outcomes for some of the world's leading brands. Growing rapidly and with offices in Melbourne, Sydney and the US, Rubik's are as serious about analytics as they are about their pinball. True story, they have like 10 pinball machines in their Melbourne head office. If you're interested in joining a passionate and vibrant team who make work fun, Head to wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That's wearerubix, all one word, wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.